0: Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet, so why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the US and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now here's your host, Dr. Nick.
1: Does anyone remember the toilet paper shortage of 2020? Perhaps it was pasta, or maybe like me, you were caught surprised by the shortage of wood in your home improvement stores. The panic buying and supply chain shortages found their way into our lives to add to the many challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic. But for the healthcare world, There were some significant shortage problems with access to ventilators and oxygen supplies amongst other things. And this extended into the community as we learn more about the disease, its biomarkers and signals, in particular, your blood oxygenation. Before we had clear treatments, the majority of healthcare facilities instituted a lockdown, limiting access by patients and working to keep people out of the hospital. With drive-through and outdoor testing centres stood up, we enabled patients to stay out of the hospital, preserving the scarce resources for those who needed hospital care. But that created a challenge of screening and monitoring so we could identify the people with worsening symptoms and in need of extra care and support early. Enter the pulse oximeter, that little device many are likely familiar with that clips over your finger and provides you with an immediate non-invasive reading of your blood oxygenation. Yet another item that disappeared off the shelves with panic buying, adding further challenges. It is a great tool and one that's been around for some time, using the transmission of light, red light and infrared light, through the finger to estimate blood oxygen levels. Unfortunately, like many other discoveries during the pandemic, this one exposed another gaping hole in inequitable access to healthcare. one born in the original development and testing that failed to include a balanced presentation of our population to include the wide range of skin colors and ethnic groups in our society. Given the basic science of this technology, skin color has an oversized impact on the accuracy of readings. And despite studies from years ago highlighting these problems, including one as far back as 2005, which clearly showed these devices overestimated arterial oxygen saturation during hypoxia, that's low oxygen, in dark-skinned individuals. Despite that, we continue to rely on these devices to guide therapy and importantly, intervention. As a result of this renewed attention and focus, the FDA has now taken a very specific interest in the accuracy of these devices that are used to guide our clinical care. Join me on Healthcare Upside Down Show as I talk with Victoria Reinhart. She's the Chief Executive Officer for Mobile Health Consultants. Hi, Victoria, welcome to the show.
2: Oh, hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me today.
1: So uh, we're talking about pulse oximeters, uh, something that's been in use, I think, uh, for an extended period of time at this point. Certainly I, as a clinician, I remember the original sort of innovation. It really changed the way that we practice medicine. They've become consumer available, but now there's been a refocus on the part of the FDA that says, well, wait a second, they're maybe not as accurate as we think, and perhaps we should be paying attention. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on?
2: Sure, yeah. So, in, and I have to echo kind of what you're describing here, that certainly it, it was a pivotal point in in patient assessment uh, when we're looking at oxygen saturation, because there's so many advantages, right? So we, we know that historically the most accurate way to assess Oxygen saturation for a patient is is arterially, right? So, uh, we go in, we put a we put a needle in the patient uh, through an arterial line, or you know through the the wrist there, and we uh, can most accurately assess the oxygen saturation through that method. But who wants to go to the hospital every time they need to get oxygen assessed? And so that was again the pivotal point that you're describing there where the pulse oximetry devices were so helpful they were non-invasive they're not painful to the patient they can be done in any setting on an outpatient setting right there's less infection risk i mean there there's so many advantages and and even now with the workforce you know that that we're looking at in healthcare and the mass exodus of healthcare providers uh, just just being able to do it without um, the invasive uh, need for a healthcare provider doing that uh, IV insertion and needle insertion is valuable. So, yes, it was a, a, a really valuable tool for us and, and still is, you know, to, to some degree, right? Because um, on the outpatient standpoint and for those who can't get into a, a setting and get that IV measurement it's It's still kind of the best thing that we have. But yes, there's, there's definite new data that is coming out that is, is being spotlighted in a way that is, is really showing us how significant the inaccuracies of these devices can be. So um, there, there is a little bit of history as well there. If you want, we can go into that a little bit about the historical uh, research and, and how long we've known about this.
1: Yeah, I I think it's important to sort of just emphasize a couple of points. So, you know, as you describe it, it's it's uh, and I uh, listeners forgive me for saying this, but we called it clinically a radial stab. And, you know, I think that was entirely descriptive of the experience for the patient. It was an unpleasant experience. We've moved past that. We've got these devices. Um, I think it'd be helpful to understand how it does it. You know there's a little bit of magic. I think most people recognize them they They flash with this red light. How do they work and um, uh, tell us a little bit of the history.
2: Yeah, so we know these little devices they they kind of look like uh, uh, this little square uh, it's you know square tech tech looking thing that goes on the end of your fingertip. And so what this does is, you know, you, you kind of pop it open, you put your fingertip in the groove of the device. The, uh, the device sends an LED light from the top of the device through the finger to kind of a sensor or a receptor on the bottom of the device. And so essentially it's sending this light through your finger and the light is getting absorbed by the hemoglobin in the blood through the fingertip based on the percentage of the light that's getting absorbed by the hemoglobin, this can tell us a lot about how much uh, oxygen is actually attached to our hemoglobin in the blood. And the device then does a calculation based on how much light is absorbed and how much light is not absorbed to give us an oxygen saturation. So yeah, there is a little bit of of magic behind the scenes there in, in what's going on. So the You know, the problem is that um, hemoglobin is not the only component (laughs) that absorbs the light. So, you know, we now know, uh, and actually we've known about this for years and years, that darker skin pigments also absorb the light and that the darker a patient's skin, the pulse oximeter essentially is kind of overestimating the amount of oxygen in the blood. And so... Um, We're now getting inaccurate results from these pulse oximeters. And when we think about logically the concept of light absorption uh, with with melanin uh, levels increased or whatever... Uh, that makes perfect sense. And this is also why things like having nail polish on can impact pulse ox uh, accuracies. This is also why, you know, poor perfusion or the presence of dyes on the skin, or, you know, there's a lot of different things that uh, have also been associated, even jaundice, right? Changing of the skin color with jaundice has been associated with less accuracy of these devices because of the concept of how they work. So once we kind of look at that, we, that makes perfect sense to us, right? That makes perfect sense to me. I'm sure you can, you can also relate to that, but yeah, that's essentially what's happening and we've known about it for years, decades even, but certainly COVID and the, the uh, much poorer outcomes we saw in minority populations, spotlighted what's happening here and let's dig into it. And that's where the FDA kind of put out the most recent notices.
1: Yeah, I I think great sort of explanation of that experience. And you know, I think the important point to highlight here is in the development of those devices, which went through an FDA process as everything does, you know, we're we're making clinical decisions. So there's an oversight. They gather data and i think this is true with many many instances of therapies particularly drug therapies where the cohort of patients was not representative of the cohort that's actually being treated or using those devices and what i'm essentially saying in a roundabout way is we didn't have representation from those minority groups in the data set so we were misrepresenting Not deliberately, I think, you know, there wasn't a a deliberate intent here, but we're now realizing that that's been the case. We've seen it with gender as well, and we're seeing it with these minority uh, um, and darker skin, that it has huge impact here. Um, And in the case of COVID, Obviously it highlighted something because we did something different. We went into the home, right? And Mm -hmm. asked people to assess. So rather than coming and filling the overfilled emergency rooms where that's where we would do this, we're saying, in fact, you couldn't buy a Pulse Locks for love nor money. It was like toilet paper. They just disappeared off the shelves. Um, But people that had them, you know, could do that. But it was misrepresenting the data, right?
2: This is correct. Yes, so you know the the thought behind uh, these devices going through FDA approval processes, et cetera. While that's all well and good, we have to remember that the requirement for minority populations for medical devices, I think it's like fifteen percent uh, minorities is all that is required for clinical trials and, you know, data collection of, of the accuracy of these devices, which um, in in most situations, or in my opinion, for sure, my clinical opinion, that's not enough, right? right. And we're seeing the aftermath of that. And, and we've known about that, again, like what you're mentioning with um, gender disparity and, and minority disparity in the testing of medical devices and medications as well. So, you know, certainly uh, that's accurate. And Um, There are strategies that were put in place with the pandemic that, you know, really helped to create some solutions around this. There also, you know, was the spotlight in the pandemic that uh, where we recognize that not only are the readings inaccurate, but that our decision making has resulted in different treatment protocols, for these patients, and that we do utilize these numbers to make clinical decisions. And now, you know, there have been studies, um, you know, for example, published in, in JAMA just this year, there was a study out of um, Brigham, and they, this group, they, they looked at I guess about 3,000 patients, about 2,600 of them or so were white, about three or 400 of them were Black, Hispanic, and Asian. And what they did was they looked at the arterial oxygen, and they looked at essentially the simultaneous uh, pulse oximetry readings. And I'm they just- found...
1: But for a second, I just think it's important to understand this. So in this particular instance, this study, if I'm uh, interpreting correctly, they measured it using the pulse oximeter that people are familiar with, but then correlated it with an actual physical measurement, the radial stab, as I described it, for 3,000 generous people who obviously allowed for this to take place. Is that, I, I, I want to be sure that that's true.
2: Well, that is true. I'll clarify. These were ICU patients. Okay, so so they they had
1: inferred consent, but still they (laughs) They had inferred consent. Yeah, (laughs) but but, uh, you know, God bless them for uh, uh, you know doing this. So I think this is Mm -hmm. excellent. So I'm sorry, carry on.
2: No, important distinction. Yes, so uh, so yes, they they looked at the comparator between the what we know is the most accurate reading done through uh, the radial stab, and they looked at the the concurrent uh, pulse ox reading, and they found that. You know, um, black patients had a higher pulse ox reading than they should have had. So they would, you know, for example, um, the the results of this study echo um, prior studies that were done twenty twenty two and and prior, where, you know, if the arterial oxygen is less than 88%. And the the patient would be deemed uh, to be in hypoxemia or hypoxic by clinical standards, and then would be, you know, eligible for supplemental oxygen and other interventions accordingly, right? So if the arterial oxygen is less than 88%, we would hope that the pulse ox is also demonstrating that. And yet three times as many Black patients, as an example, uh, had readings that were still 92, 94, 96% on the pulse ox when in actuality they were below 88%. And so, uh you know, there's there's a there's a significant impact to health outcomes there, and there was the finding, you know, from this study published in JAMA, uh, that you know those patients did end up receiving less supplemental oxygen. So now we're talking; they were hypoxic. There, the readings were not measuring that. They got less oxygen in the ICU, right, uh, with the healthcare team there surrounding them. And you know, beyond that, there there are additional studies that showed in COVID that these false readings were were correlated potentially with uh, less less receipt of COVID nineteen therapies like remdesivir and dexamethasone, and so really we this has uh, potentially contributed to different treatment outcomes in minority populations.
1: you, you know, such an important point, and you know, another tragedy that was exposed as part of this because people fortunately uh, consented participated in these trials you know folks actually paid attention to it and as you rightly point out we've known about this based on the studies and you know certainly looking back going back to as far as 2005 that you know this is data that we were aware of but it wasn't elevated this is not unusual in healthcare it's certainly not unusual in medicine it can take 15 to 20 years or more for things that we find, understand, in science to actually permeate and influence actual behavior. So uh, again, to be clear, this is not deliberate intent to apply different therapies and, and induce a poorer outcome in these minority communities. It's a result of data that is incorrect and through something that we knew but was not generally understood uh, I think, has been elevated. The FDA has obviously taken an interest. That's good news. But for the benefit of folks thinking about this now, how do we approach this? What, is, what can we do? Because we're not going to fix this immediately. It's going to take some time. There's obviously some work going on to do that now. How do we approach this?
2: Well, I think as clinicians, you know, we're always looking for objective data to help us uh, treat our patients, right? We, we feel a lot more confidence when we have objective lab values and things that can, that can support our decision-making process. But this is a really perfect example of that, you know, old school adage of you, you need to treat the patient, not the number. And that has really been, you know, the approach of a lot of teams within the pandemic. I'm going to segue a little bit just into what my industry is. So my industry is the mobile integrated health and community paramedicine industry, which is essentially an industry where, you know, we have in every community underserved patients who are unable to access the healthcare system. They, They can't drive. They don't have insurance. They have dementia and can't navigate on their own. Whatever the issue is, they can't access the healthcare that they need. And they, they kind of end up in this cycle of uh, calling 911, transported to the ER, you know, hospitalized over and over, and they get stuck in that very expensive pattern. And so my industry, Mobile Integrated Health and Community Paramedicine, actually mobilizes paramedics proactively uh, to visit patients in the home. Partnered with an interprofessional collaborative team, like uh, nurses and social workers and pharmacists and physicians, uh, to to help prevent that next nine one one call. So they we go in and we identify any issues contributing to that patient's risk for calling nine one one or that patient's risk for the next hospitalization, and we try to intervene proactively to prevent that. So so that's what the industry is, and and we're finding that. You know, as more information uh, like uh, the inaccuracy of of pulse oxes came out throughout COVID, and as we had more patients needing to be monitored at home, that mobilizing these types of teams to patient homes can uh, really provide that patient assessment there in the home, allow us to treat the patient not the number and uh, really is also a a much more personable way to deliver healthcare. The outcome side of it, you know, the, the proof is in the pudding. We have teams saving, uh, you know, millions of dollars in, in um, preventing unnecessary ambulance transports, ER visits and hospitalizations. And the, the Pulse Ox uh, updates here is just one more example of the utility of it.
1: So um, for, for the benefit of, Uh, You know, folks listening, clearly for that group, they're not typically equipped to do an arterial um, uh, test and get pulse oximetry uh, data. So they're using these devices. Um, How are they approaching it so that they understand and, you know, are making the applicable decision to give the best possible outcome?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, when we're looking at a patient that is uh, hypoxic, that that the oxygen level is really valuable, but it's not the only component of patient assessment which can demonstrate hypoxia, right? So uh, so they would assess a patient uh, as typical for, you know, kind of a full review of systems. And and that's that's essentially where they get the value. They're not outdoing Uh, a radial stab, so to speak, in the field. They're using the clinical decision-making processes based on the other clues and the patient presentation to help make that decision. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be very exciting um, to see how not only uh, this new model of healthcare you know mobilizing these teams into the home are leveraged in the future for minorities in need, et cetera, but uh, you know how future technologies and, and research being done in this area can help supplement that with getting the right tools for our minority patients.
1: So uh, FDAs jumped in, Uh, there's a focus, there's obviously uh, raised awareness. I think importantly, as you outline, it's treat the patient, not the number. I think something that we understand, but don't always apply. I mean, we have a tendency when the monitor's beeping, we pay attention to the beep, whereas the patient may be actually saying and doing nothing, but is giving us tremendous amounts of data. So this increased focus, we're now looking at new models, new ways of uh, approaching this, obviously uh, trying to gather enough data so that we can create models that are more appropriate. Um, when do you think we're going to see some uh, benefit from that and uh, you know, what do you think is coming?
2: Yeah, so, you know, I think from the research side on the technical aspect, there's you know, uh, there's a Dr. Toussaint out of Brown University that's looking at a different type of light for these devices. There is, uh, you know, Dr. Coomson at uh, at Tufts University that's looking at blending the light source along with technology that can also measure skin pigment and levels of melanin to help give a more accurate reading. And that's great, but we don't we don't know when those will be available, right? It's not developed yet. We don't have them yet, and so uh, And so, again, physician groups and and hospital systems uh, are are starting to rely on these mobilized healthcare teams. That if if you know the if the hospital's full and we have to monitor these patients at home, let's leverage the clinical team uh, and a paramedic who is really best trained to to help triage whether this is really an emergency or not, and let's leverage them in the home. And there is already an immense amount of data demonstrating the the value of that. And I'm certainly happy to provide you some additional resources if anybody of your listeners want to follow up and talk more about that data and what that looks like and and uh, all the different areas across the United States and globally where we've seen that impact I'm happy to provide you some links or or or, you know connection details for me.
1: Victoria thanks for joining me.
2: Oh I had a great time I really appreciate it and thank you so much for allowing me to uh, to chat about this really important issue for some of our highest need patients.
1: So while we await progress in the development of new devices and approaches to non-invasive monitoring of blood oxygenation, it's essential to raise awareness of these challenges and discrepancies in the accuracy of the current devices. The data has been clearly demonstrated, but the insights are not widely known. Unfortunately, not an unusual problem with healthcare innovation and advances, and one that requires more work to accelerate the bench to bedside speed of knowledge. Your better pill to swallow is to treat the patient, not the number, and using the available mobile resources that can intelligently support the home healthcare or medical home that is of increasing importance in delivering the best possible total care. Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, keep solving the business of healthcare as if your life depended on it, as one day soon, it
0: will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also check out our blog at ecgmc.com hud for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag HCUpsideDown. And join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone.